If you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to find Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. Matthew is one of the Gospels. That's one of the books that uh, shares about Jesus' ministry and his life. Uh, So Matthew's the first one in the New Testament. Go to the middle of your Bible, head to the right, and you will see Matthew. Uh, Today is referred to as Palm Sunday. So happy Palm Sunday. All right, maybe you knew it was Palm Sunday. Maybe that's the first time you've ever heard that. Uh, This is the day that I remember as a kid, we would be handed little like real palm branches and then we would proceed to tear off all of the leaves and whip each other with said palm branch. All right, this was like the greatest day, the greatest Sunday of the year as a kid. All right, Easter was like right behind it. Um, But we loved that and we don't have any palm branches this year. Uh, but in all seriousness, like the, this would be the start of what we would refer to as the Holy Week. Okay, the last week of Jesus' ministry prior to being crucified. All right, so if you want to go a little more in depth on some of these ideas, uh, you actually can go, last year we did a series that we called The Final Days. And we kind of looked at some of these specific events uh, over a span of about a month. Uh, you can go back and you can catch that. You can even see me uh, choke on a really large bite of raw horseradish, if you want to, because we talked about the Last Supper and the bitter herb, and I thought this was a great idea to eat horseradish in front of everybody. It was not, all right? And you can go back and watch that if you want. (laughs) For you guys, it was great. I sat up here tearing up for the rest of the sermon. Just was real emotional. Um, But uh, yeah, so this, we we did that last year. This year, we're just, we're going to focus on Palm Sunday today. Uh, And then obviously, like Pastor Aaron said, we have Good Friday and Easter. Uh, But today, uh, we call it Palm Sunday because of some of the events that kind of happened as Jesus was coming in. Uh, This is referred to as his triumphant entry. All right, like if you read it in the Bible, the little added headings that are put in there, uh, that's usually what this is called. Um, And this is where people... Uh, We're laying down kind of jackets, cloaks, things in front of Jesus, palm branches, as he rode a donkey into Jerusalem during this Holy Week. And that's kind of why it's called Palm Sunday, because of what was laid down. Uh, And and this is a story, I've heard it many, many times, but until I really started to try and place myself into the story with the emotions that were going on at this time, I don't think I really ever fully understood what was happening. Uh, And today, I want to just kind of challenge us to try and put ourselves emotionally into the shoes of the people that were there uh, that day. And I I think this is important for us. So uh, let's be ready to just use uh, the amazing minds that God has given us uh, to transport ourselves kind of into this story today and to try and feel what was happening and be challenged by that. So uh, if you are willing, if you're able, would you stand with me? I want to read just kind of our passage for today. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. All right, this is Matthew chapter 21, starting at the beginning of the chapter. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. 
The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. God, we pray that today we would just um, have a, a new sense of what this story means to us personally. And what the, the ramifications of your decision to continue down this path, what that means for us. And that, that we would live a life that reflects that, Jesus. We ask that in your name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. I want to try and kind of set the stage for what is happening in this passage. All right, Jesus and some of his followers have just made the walk from the village of Bethpage to Jerusalem. The distance... Uh, between those two uh, would actually be very similar. I kind of I Google mapped our side of it. It would be like if we went out to the road and we walked to Coburn's. All right? It's not very far. Uh, that is the distance that we're looking at between Bethpage and Jerusalem. Uh, it's like three kilometers, which means nothing to us Americans. So that's about 1.8 miles. All right? And, and there's so much happening, uh, especially emotionally, in this passage, uh, and with Jesus, with his followers, with the local Jerusalem religious leaders, like all these things. Uh, and here are some things that are important for us to remember. Uh, and, and there's almost, I want to approach this from like three different narratives that are happening here. Okay, and, and I think this changes depending on who you kind of relate to in that moment in the story. So we have the religious leaders, we have the Jewish people, and we have Jesus. All right, so from the religious leader's standpoint, that's what we're going to look at first. Uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, like we need to understand a little bit of the history and kind of the immediate history of what was happening before this. Um, they often had a habit of walking away from God and then basically kind of paying severely for it. All right, roughly 400 years earlier, they were in captivity in Babylon under the Babylonians. The whole nation had been conquered and taken away as prisoners. They were living in exile. All right. Uh, then the Babylonians, they were conquered by the Persians. Okay, so they're like the prisoners over in this country. Then a new country comes in and conquers the ones that are holding them captive. All right, and the Persians actually allowed the Israelites then to go back and begin to rebuild all right, so this is what we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. All right, is they were in Babylon, the Persians conquered them, and now they are going back to try and kind of start over. So the Persians ruled over the, the Jewish people until the rise of Alexander the Great. All right, and at this point, Alexander the Great, he is Greek. They come in and they begin to kind of conquer different areas and they conquer the Persians. All right, this is when you look at history, it's kind of just one empire after another after another that keeps coming in. And the Jewish people had had varying degrees of independence uh, depending on which ruler it was. All right, they were never truly free or independent. There was always people that were kind of ruling over them in this season. But depending on who it was, some of them let them kind of be themselves and some were really strict. Then there was something that was called the Maccabean Revolt. 
All right? Uh, and at this time, this led to about 80 years of the Jewish people having independence. This started in 142 BC, the Maccabean Revolt, and it was a massive part of the Israelite history. Then Rome ultimately comes in, conquers the Greek Empire, and in 63 BC, they took control and ended kind of that independence, those 80 years that the Jewish people had. All right, so this is in 63 BC. In this whole kind of 400-year period, how much independence they had was given, uh, was directly connected to the people that were ruling over them. All right, so the Jewish leaders had good reason to try to keep the Romans happy. Does that make sense to us? Like, if your people that are ruling over you are happy with you, they're probably going to give you a little bit more freedom. So this was a massive part of the Jewish leaders uh, in their mind was, okay, we need to make sure we don't do anything to upset the Romans so that we can kind of stay in this spot. All right? Um, and so during this time, you have then Jesus who pops up, and he begins to kind of travel around the countryside. He's mainly out in the rural areas. He's not in Jerusalem, kind of depending on which one of the Gospels you're reading. For the most part, it looks like he doesn't go into Jerusalem until the very end. And he's out there, and he's traveling around in the midst of them trying to keep peace, and he says all sorts of crazy things where he is kind of confronting, and he's saying things contrary to the Jewish law, and their beliefs, kind of from their standpoint. He's also, uh, he was starting to be called king and lord and other various titles like that. And these titles were usually reserved for whoever was the Roman in charge. All right? Um, and so they would use those specific titles to refer to Caesar. Now people are using those titles to refer to Jesus. So you have this guy, he is challenging the Jewish people. He is challenging the Romans who are ruling over them. And you can see how this is a serious issue on multiple fronts. All right, we are still looking at this from the religious leaders, the Jewish people. And in the eyes of the religious leaders, you have someone who is leading Jews away from the law, which to them means away from God. And in their history, every time that happens, large groups of the Jewish people are led away from the law and from God, then some type of terrible calamity happens. All right? And then you have someone who, he's also very likely going to get himself killed because of how he is talking about the Romans or how people are talking about him. So this is the religious leaders. They've been hearing about Jesus out in the countryside, probably for several years, getting reports of what he's doing. This has been going on for about three years. He had been interacting with religious leaders out there and kind of confronting them. You better believe that message is getting back to Jerusalem and the leaders there. Like, hey, this guy's an issue. He is saying things that go against what we believe. He is leading large groups of people away from us. He is doing miraculous things that is drawing people in to him. And now, him and his followers are they would probably see this as a little bit of a war path. They're on a war march into Jerusalem. And they're all chanting Jesus' name, and he's king, he's Lord. And they're coming into Jerusalem. And the time that they're coming in is right around Passover, the biggest holiday for the Jewish people. 
So you already have extra people that are in Jerusalem for this holiday. And now you have this group of, in your mind, divisive, rebellious people marching into the city. Can you feel this? Like if you were a religious leader, can we understand kind of what they were feeling here? Because I think that's important for us. This is a big mob almost in their eyes. All right, now understand that the religious leaders, they had made deals within the local politics to allow them to be leading. Throughout all those years of other people coming in, they would basically get rid of the high priest, the person who was in charge, and then they would allow whatever family had the most money and wanted to pay for it to become the new high priest. And so these leaders, they had, they had done backroom deals. They were in positions of power. They were keeping the Romans happy. If things started to get out of control, they'd kind of look to them and be like, you need to get your people in control. Otherwise, we'll take you out and we'll put someone else here. So you can feel this tension. Now, from the people's perspective, Jesus' followers or any of the Israelites, they have only tasted freedom for about 80 years in the past 500 years or so. Most of their time, someone is telling them what to do and imposing their culture on them. They think about their ancestors and how they were essentially, the Israelites were at times kind of the superpower of the area. They were the ones that were ruling. They were never the strongest, but for some reason, we know why, because God was on their side, they continued to win so many of these battles. And they think about how a hundred years ago they had freedom thanks to a few bold rebels, the Maccabean revolt. And so people are hungry for this again. They want to see another rebellion. They want to see another revolt against the Romans. They're thinking about the Maccabeans and just like how all of that went down and they're like, we need to do that. So you have people called zealots and they, they are massively for a revolt against Rome. And they, they want to see freedom again in their life. All right? Now, they look at the religious leaders, the people do, and they say, okay, they're living this, this lofty relationship with God. I don't know if I can keep up with that. They have all these rules that I'm trying to do, and I'm never quite as good as they are. And sometimes I have to feel like I have to kind of break those rules in order to make ends meet because I have to put food on the table. I have to have money. And, and so I have the religious leaders, and they're pushing down on us that we need to live this way. We have the Romans pushing down on us that we need to live this way. We need a rebellion. We need some independence. They want to change something. They definitely want the Roman rule to disappear. Jesus comes on the scene, and he seems to be offering hope. People who are sick are being healed. People who are possessed by spirits are being set free. The religious leaders and what would seem to be their lofty expectations uh, are kind of pushing people down, and Jesus is coming in and saying, hey, we can live this way. And most recently, the people would have actually even heard of how Jesus had brought someone back to life that was dead. It says, when you read through scripture, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, that right there is essentially, uh, we'll say, the final nail in the coffin. All right, the final nail in the cross, however you want to phrase that. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, it creates a massive issue. And Lazarus is going around and telling people about it. People are talking about it. And all of the, Israel, the, the Jewish leaders, they're like, what do we do about this? 
They want this change. They, they are excited about Jesus, but we think Jesus is leading us away from God. So all of the people that are walking with Jesus into town, you know, I kind of said it, that it probably appeared like a warpath. I think many of them thought that they were on a warpath, that they were going in to change things. They were going in to start this rebellion and that Jesus was going to lead them. All right, so can you feel the, the high emotions from the groups that like you're walking into and what they feel about all this, the people surrounding Jesus, what they feel about it. Everyone has high expectations, high emotions. And then Jesus, the last perspective I want to hit before we kind of dive into this. And Jesus has been spending three years trying to teach people what it truly means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. He's trying to get that across and he doesn't necessarily point to the fact that, yes, we are going to be some superpower again. We are going to be raised back into this great place. He talks about serving instead of ruling. He talks about giving things up instead of taking them. He talks about praying for your enemies and not fighting them. He talks about caring for the weak and the poor and not exploiting them. He is constantly trying to paint this picture of what it really should be like. But everyone seems to be so distracted by their own desires, the ideas and the dreams that they actually have, that they don't seem to be able to understand his message. He also knows that this is the final stage for everything to happen. He knows that riding into Jerusalem is going to trigger certain events that cannot be walked back. This is the beginning of the end. This is the big climax of his entire ministry and his life. He knows that people still aren't going to get it. And after all he has done and taught and said and modeled, they still won't understand it. All right? And as he is riding in from Bethpage to Jerusalem, he actually begins to cry. We don't see that in the, in the, um, the excerpt out of Matthew that we just read. We don't see it in Mark. We see it in Luke, actually, and I want to read this for us. All right, so I'm kind of starting back on where he's marching. It says, When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Right? You can feel the religious leaders in this moment. They're like, you got to stop this. They, they are calling you things that, that only God should be called. They're calling you things that Caesar demands to be called. This is not going to end well. you got to stop them. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers, that they would burst out singing these same praises. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. And he says this, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And in this moment, he is prophesying about what happens in 70 AD where Jerusalem is completely leveled and destroyed. And he isn't just tearing up here. He is weeping as he rides in. 
So can you picture this? These three different groups. You have the religious leaders and all of the emotion that they have wrapped up in this. You have the Jewish people and the hopes and dreams, aspirations of freedom and independence once again. And then you have Jesus, and he's sitting here, he's just saying, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. No one does. Can you imagine in that moment how frustrating that would be? Okay, we'll, we'll do something dangerous here. Put yourself in the shoes of Jesus. Okay? Could you imagine for three years you've been trying to teach people and even your closest 12 that you've been working with and you've been explaining things in depth to, they just don't seem to get it. The followers are excited. They think this is it. We are finally doing what we've been waiting for. Change is finally going to happen. Notice the people that are, that are praising Jesus here. There's a little bit of a misconception, I think, a lot. These are not the same people that, that days later are yelling, crucify him. Okay, I think we kind of, I don't know where that started, but we started getting that idea that they like turned on him that fast. Uh, that doesn't really seem to be what happens. You have Jesus' followers that are walking with him in. You have all the people in the city, and they are, they're like, who is this? What is going on? Those are the people that kind of turn against them. You have the religious leaders saying, like, you need to get a hold of your followers. They are going to get us all killed. All of us. We're all going to be killed because of this. Can you feel this tension? You know, this would be what we would call a, a tinderbox that is ready to go up in flames. When you have all these expectations. The city's already bursting with extra people who don't live there because of Passover. Tensions are high. They are beyond high. You know, this is, this is like the boiling point, the breaking point, whatever you want to call it. And once they get into town, Jesus goes to the temple, the heart of everything for Jewish people, and he clears it out. He makes a whip, he flips tables, he chases people out. And this is actually meant to go in line with what previous prophets had done. Can you, can you sense how Jesus going into the temple and clearing things out, what that would do in this situation with all of these emotions? I know for many of us, the world that we live in, the place that our, that our country currently is in, it may seem like things are you know, in desperate need of change in different ways, you know, depending on what, you, what you're feeling. But we, we know this, like we are in a very di divisive time right now. Things are just, tensions are high. You cannot talk about anything having to do with, with politics without tensions running high and people kind of walking on eggshells and you know, sometimes that's good because we need to kind of be, you know, we need to watch what we say around people, different things like that to protect our witness. But tensions are high. Things are divisive. And everybody has strong opinions. The language that is used when talking about people who think and believe differently from one group to the other. It's, it's incredibly strong. And I think for many people, it would seem that this is where God should be focused and Christians should be focused. That change needs to happen like in that arena and we need to be a massive part of that. All right, I, I don't know. What I do know is this. When we compare the political landscape of today 
to the political landscape of the first century world that Jesus was in, specifically the Jewish world, like it, it's incredibly similar. We don't get to sit here and say that this is unprecedented times. We don't get to sit here and say, well, this is how we have to respond because this is all new territory. It's not. You have, you have people, the zealots, that would literally go through the streets and, and just stab tax collectors and kill them. Like, okay, this is not really new ground. This is what our world has been. And back then, you would have people that say, this, this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of massive importance. Okay, can we feel the same importance that they have in this story? And here, here's what I do know. I would say that there is not a greater tension today than there was in Jesus' time. I would say that like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, there are some today who have purposely aligned themselves in certain areas to have greater influence and power, just like the religious leaders back then. I would say that we have religious leaders today doing the same thing. I would say that many people are wanting to see some sort of change. They want something to be different. They have hopes of God making this big sweeping change. But when you read through the story of Jesus, regardless of what the people wanted, he rarely engaged in the local disputes in politics. That's what I do know when I read through this story. And there are a few moments where people kind of challenge Jesus and they ask things having to do with a lot of the, the, the political uh, issues that they were facing, having to do with taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we not? All these different things. And the few times that people brought that to him, he almost kind of just gave a quick answer. Like, that just doesn't matter. Like, okay, just go and do this. It doesn't matter. Just pay the tax. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's? I don't care. Give the coin to him. Whose image is on you? That's God the Father. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. You notice that the image of Caesar's on the coin, but the image of God is on you. He's saying, give the coin to Caesar. I don't care. Give you, give all of you to God. And he kind of just takes these moments. He passes through some of these political landscapes that we would maybe expect him to engage in, and he doesn't. You see in the Gospels how often Jesus does not meet people's expectations. Peter multiple times tries to push Jesus in a different direction. Matthew 16, he says this, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the, the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord. He said, this will never happen to you. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. Whew. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And then this goes right into, it says, then Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. All right, the passage that, that many of us have probably heard before. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, give up your way, take up my way. And this is a challenge because in this moment, Peter wants Jesus to take up Peter's way. You don't have to die. You don't have to do this. We can do a different way. 
Peter is focused on his own ideas of what Jesus should be doing. Later, when they go to arrest Jesus, Peter still cuts off the ear of one of the servants. Again, he has his own way, his own idea of how things should be happening. And because of that, he is completely missing what Jesus is doing in these moments. Let's stand together as we bring this to a close. Here's my concern. Here's why this matters for us today. It is so easy for us to look at the world around us, to look at our own lives and our families, and for us to come up with an idea of what we think God should be doing. Right? Have you ever been there? Yeah? What does your prayer life look like? How much of our prayer life is saying, God, can your will, can your mindset, can your kingdom, can you please put that in me so that I can be aligned with you? Or how much of our prayer life is instead saying, God, this is what I think you should do. This is, it'd be really great if you did this, if you worked this way, if you resolved this situation in this exact way. Or we think that if Jesus were to work in my life, this is what it would look like. And we have this idea that we kind of put God into this box. You know, I I would get this job or I'd have this raise at work that I need. Or, you know, my spouse would start to treat me differently. Maybe they would uh, start to be interested in God. Or if God started to move in our country, it would mean that, you know, these laws would be overturned or these ones would be upheld or this would become illegal or this political party would hold office. And we have all these ideas of what it looks like for God to move. And when we start to assume that we know what it would look like for God to be moving, we tend to miss how he's actually working in our life and in the world around us. When we start to have these expectations and we put those on God, the amount of times that we then miss what he actually wants to do. And even worse than that, I think we start to worship and love God, not because of who he is, but because of what he can do for us. You know, think about those friendships that you've maybe had at some point in your life where you're like, yeah, okay, I think when I'm, I'm younger, hopefully I don't have friendships like this anymore. And you're like, oh, I, I want to go to so-and-so's house because remember they have that cool toy that I only see commercials of that toy. I don't get to play with that toy, but they have it. I want to go there. And we start to build these relationships because of what people can do for us. And pretty soon we have this relationship with God and we keep that relationship because of what we think he can do for us. And we say, well, God, I'm doing all of this. I'm showing up to church. I'm maybe even being generous. I'm doing these things. I serve in this way. So God, you, you really need to kind of start working a little bit both ways here. And that's just not what this relationship is. It's not what it is. In our passage today, Jesus is weeping as he rides into Jerusalem because he says, I I wish you would understand the way to peace. He has a way to peace, but they aren't interested in it because they aren't interested in peace. They are interested in power. They aren't interested in peace. They're interested in freedom. Freedom. And anyone who has 
made a decision to, to hand their life over to God knows that in those moments, we, we don't necessarily have freedom. We, we are giving up those rights. We are giving up those freedoms to say, God, your way is better than mine. I want to follow you. And we get rid of those freedoms that we have. And I'm getting more and more concerned that too many Christians, and especially religious leaders, are more interested in power than in the peace that Jesus has to offer. We know that this was the case even with his own followers because of what we see. The idea of laying palm branches down in front of him like this, this idea, it went back actually to the Maccabean revolt. When the leader of that was coming into town, after winning this victory, people laid palm branches in front of him. Judas Maccabeus, as he's coming in, they're, they're laying that. So even as they worship Jesus and lay these palm branches down, they are in a way trying to reenact what happened with, with that revolt. They're like, Jesus, do the same thing. And they're shouting Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. Save now. You can see these like agendas that are attached in this story. They wanted to worship Jesus, but they were worshiping their own idea of what they thought Jesus was going to do for them. I think this week is such a good opportunity for us to slow down, hopefully not slip into tradition, but really reflect on what Jesus has done for us, what that should mean to us, the implications it has. Am I living a life that is worthy, a reflection of his sacrifice? I, I don't think that you like have to go to a Good Friday service in order to do that. But this week, can you think about, is my life, the way that I'm living, is that, is that a reflection, really, of what he's done for me? Or am I just kind of going through certain motions here? All right, so this week, let's just be ready to reevaluate even what our approach is. Why do you worship God? Why do you desire his presence? Is it just for him? Or is there something that is attached to it? All right. I want us just to kind of take a moment here. I'm going to close in prayer in, a, in just a moment. But even as we're talking today, you might be here. And you might be saying, okay, you know what? I've been living my whole life for myself. Maybe I even thought that I was living for God. But actually, I was living for what God could do for me. I thought my life was just going to be better with him because why wouldn't life be better if the creator of the entire world is on your side? And yet when we look at what this, how this played out for Jesus' closest followers, I can't remember what it is, but how many of them were killed for what they believed in? You know, that's, that's not what we're promised. And so I want us just to think about that. Like, what is it? And so if that's you and you're like, I, I've never... I've never truly given up these freedoms and these rights. I've always had an agenda attached or I've just never even made that decision. If that's you, I want you to find myself, Pastor Aaron afterwards today. We wanna to talk with you just about what that could look like to take some steps forward. All right, and we do it that way because we want to help people truly begin to walk this out. All right, it's not as simple as just like, okay, yep, I'm gonna do that. And we walk out of here by ourselves with no support what is the chance that that's actually going to happen? You're more likely to just slip back into old habits. So I'm going to close in prayer. But let's be thinking about this. Where or why is it that we worship God? Why is it that we have this relationship?
do we have things attached to that? Jesus, I pray right now, Lord, that for every single one of us, that we would just begin to uh, trust you completely. God, maybe we have these ideas of how we want this to play out and, and we think that it should happen this way or that way. But God, you are so much greater than any plan, any idea that we could ever come up with. God, and it, it, it just doesn't matter sometimes what, what is happening in our kingdom as long as you are sitting on the throne of your kingdom, God, the kingdom that, that supersedes everything else. God, not that we would be passive and apathetic to the world around us, but Lord, that we would not mistake what it is that you want to be doing. Lord, that we would keep that open, that we would be looking for how you are moving in our life and moving in the world around us. And God, that we would then be part of that. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.